morning in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, where we were last week. We'll be picking up, starting at verse 14 of the message, but we'll read starting at verse 12. Paul is completing the historical matters that he was talking about in verses 12 and 13, and then he does what he often does. He moves into an excited proclamation and declaration of God's greatness, God's goodness, God's glory. And he starts it off with the words, thanks be to God. But before that, we need to remember what was going on, what the context that prompted him to do this was. He has been defending his ministry and his decision not to visit them because he wanted them to clear up the case of uh, discipline before he got there so that he didn't have to be involved and so that they can encourage and enrich each other and the time would be better spent by them doing it themselves without him so that they would learn and they would grow. But he really wants to hear what has happened and he hasn't heard yet. And so even though there's a door open for him to preach the gospel, even though he says, you know, the God, the, in the Lord this was open for me to preach the gospel, he was too distressed for the gospel ministry and eventually departed to Macedonia to find Titus. Now, we have this little divergence from his historical matters that doesn't get picked up again until the middle of chapter 6. But if we look at chapter 7, we can see the conclusion of the matter. When he came to Macedonia, they had no rest, for they were afflicted at every turn, fighting without and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast, comforted us by the coming of Titus. So they were able to reunite with Titus finally. And not only by his coming, but also by the comfort with which he was comforted by you, as he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, and so that I was rejoiced still more. Second Corinthians 7, 5-7. through 7. So we'll pick up that story when we come to back chapter 6. But for now, we have this long section where he is speaking of the glory of the Christian ministry, the glory of the gospel ministry. Uh, specifically, he's defending his own ministry as an apostle in this letter, but we can understand what he's saying here of the ministry of himself and of the other apostles and of the pastors. And I think really we're talking about the ministry of every Christian. Remember in Exodus 19.6, we learned that God had called his people originally to be a kingdom of priests. And in 2 Peter 2, 5 and 9, which we went into in great detail when we went through first, uh, first Peter, rather, chapter 2, 5 and 9, we covered in great detail his reminder that we are called to be a holy nation, priests to the Lord, all of us, not just the ministers. And so this is a, a useful passage for us to learn about the glory of the ministry of the Christian life in the Christian church. And it starts rather abruptly here as he digresses, and this is really Paul's style, and you're going to love it. He starts with the words, thanks be to God. And he shares with them that glory of the true Christian ministry. So before we look at it, we should read. I will start at verse 12, and I'll read into chapter 3 a little bit. 
When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I took leave of them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance of death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? For we are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but men of sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? For you yourselves are a letter of recommendation, written in your hearts, and known and read by all. And you show that you are a letter from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not in tablets of stone, but in tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward God. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves to claim anything is coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives light. Let us pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we do ask, Lord, for your mercies as we open your word this day and seek to understand the wisdom of your word and understand the meaning of this fragrance of life and death that we are spreading throughout the world. We ask, Lord, for grace that we might glorify you in this and that we might know you and draw nearer to you through this. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So picking up in verse 14, we really covered 12 and 13 previously when we were looking at the historical situation. Picking up at verse 14, we see that God in Christ is the source of our victorious power of the ministry. Uh, Just a quick note about the translation. If you are following in a different translation, you'll have noticed the words are a bit different in the ESV, the NASB, and the King James. One has leads us in triumphal procession. The NASB has leads us in triumph. And the King James says, causes us to triumph. They're all exactly the same words. There's no variant there. The problem is in translation. The word being translated concerning triumph can mean to triumph or to lead in triumph or sometimes to make a spectacle or show of something. Uh, It brings to mind the triumphal parade at the end of a war or battle. And there were two kinds of people who were led in triumph in that parade. The participators in the victory, the army of the victor led by the king or the the general, and the victims of the defeat. And this word is used only one other time in the New Testament. And it's in Colossians 2.15 where it says, He disarmed the rulers in authority and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Now, clearly, this is referring to them as the victors, I mean, as the victims of defeat, the ones who were defeated, these rulers and authorities who were being put to shame. And that was what the triumphal parade was about. You shame the enemy, and you, you 
um, glorified essentially your work and those who did the work of the, the war, the battle, and winning. And in addition, though, if we look at that one in Colossians, we see the word over is added there. Now that extra word in the Greek really changes the meaning to be making sure that it is the victor. These are the losers that he's talking about. We don't have that word in Second Corinthians, and so most understand it to be referring to victory, uh, are being part of the victory, and really being led in that victory train behind the throne, behind the white horse, behind Christ. As he comes victorious as king over all. Now the King James has cause causes us there, and they use a causative ten- meaning of the verb because of the spelling of the verb in Greek. However, most people reject that because everywhere it's used in the Greek in general, it doesn't have a causative meaning at all. So the leading idea is better, leading us to triumph or leading us in triumph, leading that procession in triumph. So that's concerning Christ's victory and us being part of his victory. So how is God in Christ the source of our victorious power in our ministry? Well, Paul in this section is very typical of Paul as a Jew. He likes to use those chiasms, very small ones everywhere sprinkled in his thinking, and particularly when he talks about theological matters. And verse 14 and 16, the end of verse 16, 16, and 17 are kind of the bookends And the main point, 15 and 16, are in the middle. And so when we think of it like that, we can see the true ministers are not sufficient in themselves to the work of being a pleasing aroma of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. We'll come back to that again when we get there. But the section is the wrapper. And we'll get to the core in a few minutes. The start of this section, but thanks be to God, is an interesting way that Paul always does this. Uh, Robertson says that we should be grateful for his emotional outburst, Paul's rebound of joy in meeting Titus in Macedonia. So he's now remembering that event that he was so stressed and so struggling and so wanting to know what was happening in the church and what he needed to do to help them to glorify God and to met their wicked ways or corrupted ways. And now he's rebounded. He's heard great news beyond what he had hoped. And that, that joy has given the world one of the finest expositions of what the Christian ministry is and experience. One that reveals the wealth of Paul's nature and his mature grasp of the great things in the service of Christ. And this is a fairly long section of four, five, six, three to three plus chapters. But we get in this outburst, and in all of his outbursts, many wonderful treasures. When he is moved passionately to praise God, he always includes some treasure for us in that, some great treasure. And so we can look forward to that. Now he says, of Christ and of God, that he always leads us in triumphal possession. 
He's the king, right? Christ has won the great victory. We're soldiers of the cross, everyone who follows him. And there are a number of things we can see in this verse. The first one is always. He always leads us in triumphal procession. Without fail, the gospel brings a victory to God wherever God sends it. Speaking of the promise of the gospel in Isaiah, God says, For the ra- for as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall be my word that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that which I purpose, shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. Paul knew that God's word, the, the gospel going out, was something God wanted done to every creature on earth should hear it, and he knew that it would glorify God and accomplish God's purpose. Now, God's purpose was not always salvation for the Persian. We saw that in Ezekiel just this morning when we read Ezekiel 3. Sometimes that purpose is the punishment of the person, to make their guilt clear both to them and to the whole world. But Paul had great hope in the work he was doing because he knew whatever the result was, that God would achieve his purpose with it, even if it wasn't always Paul's purpose and Paul's desire, but God would be glorified. Now we also have in that verse, it leads us in triumphal possession, that triumph, if we think about it, that Jesus Christ is king, he is Lord of lords and king of kings, he is ruler of everything. The Catechism asks, what does he do as king? And question number 26, and it says, As king, Christ brings us under his power, saves us, and brings us into his kingdom. He rules and defends us. He restrains and conquers all his and our enemies. Now, we think about him as the king leading us in triumph. What can man do to us, Paul asks, if he is for us? We have that triumph already built into us. And that triumph we saw in Colossians 2.15, that triumph is through the cross. We're talking about salvation here. The salvation of God's people, one the Father gave to Jesus Christ. That salvation is, I think, the main point of 15 and 16, so we'll hold off on that for a moment. But notice that he said he leads us. We, the apostle, the pastors, the elders, and even every person who believes, he leads us. It is not our superiority. We are simply instruments used by God. We are his soldiers. He directs us. He gives us the battle, and he is the one who wins it for us. We do not accomplish those things on ourselves, on our own. Particularly if you think about the verse 6c, you know, who who is who is up to this task? Who is able to do this? That rhetorical question is answered for God alone. God is the one who gives us the victory, not our ability, not our skill, not our superiority. Those are the things he was battling against there in Corinth. Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God, the salvation of everyone who believes. Romans 1.16, that power is God as our King, as our Lord, 
but he works through men. Paul had written them before that, when I come to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom. This is 1 Corinthians 2, 1 through 5. Now, the philosophers, the scholastics, the people he's battling against, came with lofty speech and wisdom and demanded you follow them because of their superiority. And Paul is saying, I came with it to you proclaiming that testimony of God without that. For I decided to know nothing among you except Christ and Jesus and him crucified. That was foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews, but he wasn't going to do anything else. He wasn't going to prove his superior wisdom and knowledge. He was going to preach Christ. And I was with you, he says, in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, that would be how the philosophers taught, that he used their words of wisdom to persuade. When he says, in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of man, but in the power of God. Power, as we see in chapter 3, we're not talking here, I think, about miracles, but we're talking about the power of God in salvation, the power of God to change hearts, to take out that heart of stone, put in a heart of flesh, to give a spirit, to cause men to be careful to keep the word of God. That whole work of salvation is God's power, and I think that's what he's talking about, because he says it is written in your hearts. Your lives are changed. You were pagans. Now you are godly. You were living that life. Now you're living a new life. That was the testimony of the proof of his ministry. And that is what he has in mind here, this power of God in and in converting them, not the power of the wisdom of man. And the power that we see was sealed by the Holy Spirit. Remember what he wrote in their first epistle, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants or he who waters is anything. Now this is, he works through us, but it is not us who accomplish the work. And only God who gives the growth. It is God who causes salvation. It is God who brings about sanctification. But he works through men. He works through his people, through those he has assigned the task. He who plants and he who waters are one. We each receive wages according to our labor, for we are God's fellow workers. And you are God's field, God's building. First Corinthians 3, 6-9. So it's not us. But we are simply God's instruments. But he leads us in that triumphal return, that triumphal entry with the crushed enemies in front and him and us behind, following in that triumph that comes only through his strength and his power so that he gets the glory. Now, as I've stressed a few times, I really see a strong contrast here and really throughout both the epistles to the Corinthians between the godly minister on the one hand and the Greek and Roman philosophers on the other hand, and those who followed either God or them. And we see that strong matter there, but not just the Greek and Roman philosophers, but all the wise men and the gurus throughout the world. They all follow that same pattern. It is their ability, their success, their wisdom 
that you should follow them for. Whereas Paul says, I decided to know nothing of that but Christ Jesus and him crucified. And so on the other hand, you have the word of God and the teaching of God, not the wisdom of Paul. And so he's making that great distinction between the two. You either follow man's wisdom or you're following men, or you follow the wisdom of God, not man, in Scripture. And the two are diametrically opposed. And thus the great conflict in Corinth was between their traditional religion of wisdom versus the wisdom of God. The traditional religion of wisdom of man and following man and that, that distinction is made throughout both of these epistles, an important key to understanding what he's talking about. So that brings us to the, the, the core thoughts about the knowledge of God. Note, knowledge is the first fruits of the victory, first fruits of the victorious power of the ministry. It brings about that knowledge of God throughout the world. May you remember what he said in our passage, I shouldn't have left that open. The fragrance of the knowledge of him is spread everywhere through the work of the ministry. That fragrance is an interesting way of putting things. The ministers, the faithful ministers at least, are spreading the fragrance of the knowledge of God. What is the knowledge of God we're speaking about? Well, especially the gospel but not just the simple gospel that people like to tell, but the biblical gospel that Paul is teaching. And it starts here, it's an allusion to the Old Testament sacrifices. Now, you may not have noticed that, the fragrance of knowledge. What does that mean? The Greek words there, though, are the same used in the Greek translation in the Old Testament for the pleasing aroma to the Lord of burnt offerings. The same word. And I think that's deliberate on Paul's part. He's reminding us that the, the, the offerings of man to God to show their humility, to show their place, to show their understanding and acceptance of God's way of salvation are the knowledge that we are spreading in the gospel. Nothing has changed. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Old Testament salvation, the New Testament salvation are the same. And the offering sacrifices in the Old Testament showed that they understood their place before God. It showed they understood the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. By confessing that I am worthy of death and I am offering this animal in substitute, they were saying, I, I acknowledge that God is right and that I deserve death, and I'm asking him for appeasement. Unlike the Pharisees of the day, it showed they understood they deserved that death. We are not weighed in a balance, and if we have more good works than bad works, we go to heaven. Many people still think that and teach that today. We don't believe that. The Jews seem to think so. They would Literally, they would put a cloth over their wine glass and drink through the cloth, even though it dribbled down their face onto their jerk. And that dribbling was a sign they wouldn't wash that. That was a sign of their holiness. See, I, I filter out the gnat because the gnat was unclean, and if you swallowed the gnat while drinking the wine, you were, guilty, you were ceremonially unclean. And Jesus says, well, you strain out the gnat, but you swallow a camel. 
uh, they didn't understand the significance. What it was teaching them was that even that little thing they don't recognize and notice was enough to cast them into hell. Jesus said when he was preaching about the moral law in the Sermon on the Mount, he, he concludes that section of the moral law with the words, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. The standard is not more good than bad. It is absolute perfection. If you have the least sin, the least corruption in your heart, you have no place in heaven. They didn't understand that. And it is written, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Romans 3.23, our only hope is shifted from ourselves to something external, to an external salvation. And that's what the offerings of the Old Testament, the birth offerings, were really teaching us that we needed to understand that we could not save ourselves. We have fallen short of the glory of God. We are not perfect. Paul write them that God had chosen one who is lowly and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the sins that are, so that no human being might boast in his presence. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became for us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption, so that it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-31. Note well what it says. Christ became to us righteousness. What we are saying here is, first and foremost, that our perfection comes because our sins were paid for by Christ on the cross. And you who were dead in your trespasses and sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made a alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses by canceling the written debt that stood against us with its legal demands. What is that written debt? The record God has of all of our sins and the price that has to be paid for them according to the law. The wages of sin is death. He set that aside, nailing it to the cross. In other words, it was paid in full. That was Colossians 2, 13 and 14. Our sin was paid for on the cross, nailed to the cross with Christ. But secondly, our perfection comes because he fulfilled the law. He fulfilled it perfectly. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law of the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. Matthew 5:17 He becomes the wisdom of God the righteousness of God sanctification and redemption that is to say he is our righteousness because he fulfilled the law and that is also imputed to us it's because we have that fulfilling of the law on us and all of our sins are falling short of the law we're put on him on the cross and that is our righteousness and the sacrifices were really leading them to that and showing them that, that we needed a substitute. The, the Pharisees of Jesus' day couldn't understand that they couldn't pay for their own sin. Oh, I strained out the gnat, therefore I, I compensated for my you know, anger, my lust, my greed, my whatever. Thing. No, that's not how it works. You cannot pay for your own sin. You cannot pay the price even for the smallest sin. Remember that passage in Psalm 49, 7-9 that I like to read. 
No man can ransom another or give to God the price for his life, for the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. You cannot pay even for the smallest of sin. No price is enough because the price of offending an infinitely holy God is infinite. Only Christ, who is God, could pay that price for us. And that is why it is so important that he be both the Son of Man, a man, and the Son of God, infinite, to be able to be a valid substitute for us. Now, speaking of the Day of Atonement, you remember the Day of Atonement was a sacrifice where they recited all the sins of Israel under a goat and sent it out into the desert. And every year that list would get longer and longer and longer and longer. And Hebrews points out that these sacrifices are a reminder of sin every year, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sin. Now, the people had to understand, and they could see it in that ceremony alone, that it didn't really take away those sins. It was pointing you towards a perfect sacrifice. Which is why Paul says, the law was our guardian until Christ came, that we might be justified by faith, Galatians 3.24. The idea of being guardian might be the wrong word. I like schoolmaster from the King James. The idea is that it's the one who guides our, our learning, our understanding. The word literally means, by the way, the servant or slave who was placed over the raising of a child to see to their moral upbringing. They followed the child everywhere, corrected them, and it claimed everything to them about how to behave. And that's the Greek word. And that's what the law was. It, it was showing them their impossibility of being right before God because of their sin and corruption and the impossibility of paying for it and their need for salvation outside of themselves. Jesus is that substitute, that sacrifice. We have been ransomed from the feudal ways we inherited from our forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but the precious blood of Christ like a lamb without slot bought or blemish. He was sacrificed in our place to pay the price for our sins. And in him we receive that forgiveness as well as having him fulfill all of the righteous requirements of the law. We have that also credited to us. So that substitutionary atonement, as we call it, it's despised by the world. It's despised and rejected and condemned by many of the churches even today. But it is what it, the truth of the gospel is all about. And that is where Paul is leading us in his writings and here, that need for that sacrifice of God to pay for our sins, which is why we have this verbiage about the aroma and the fragrance, meaning being used the same words in the Old Testament of the burnt offerings. Now, our place in that as Christians and our place in that, his place as an apostle, the apostles, pastors, or Christians, is that we also how to live our lives as living sacrifices. <laughs> Paul alludes to this in 2 Timothy 4, 6, when he says, 
I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. Not a burnt offering in that case, but like a drink offering poured out. His life is being taken away from him, and he sees it departing piece by piece. And this really is the call of every Christian. Romans 12, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to the world, but transformed by the renewing of your mind, that by testing you might discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. The desire is to have that holy life. The God wants us to all have that holy life in Christ as a new creation in Christ. And we gain that, we live that by living as a living sacrifice, giving everything up for God. And that life of holiness is seen by God, but also seen by the whole world. It's what gives credence to our testimony about the gospel. It's what aids in spreading that fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere, that we live that life that is new and that is different that he's talking about in chapter 3 that we'll look at in the future message. Not well that this knowledge is going also, though, to everyone, to those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. God does not guarantee that if you give the gospel the right way, people will be saved. I remember doing evangelism explosion, and that was basically their message. If you have the right technique in spreading the gospel, everyone can be saved. And I remember hearing the story about, I shared it before, about pastor who said he'd saved thousands of people in his town. He only had like 10 in his church. And yeah, you can save them by persuading them, but that is not the way the gospel works. For some who are being saved in the right time, like Lydia in Acts 16, he opened her heart. God opened her heart that she could receive those things. Some he opens their heart and some he does not, and some he hardens when they hear the truth. But the message goes out to everyone. Some people think there's no value in the gospel going to somebody who's going to reject it. But God disagrees. Uh, Speaking of the final judgment, you remember Jesus said, a servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating, but the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. For everyone who has been given much of him, much will be required. And to him who has been entrusted much, they will demand more. We're all God's creatures and God obligated to glorify God with our lives. We're all God's, ultimately God's servants. Even the pagans are obligated to that, even though they don't do it. And everyone will give an account to God for what they have. The more grace somebody has shown somebody they've been shown in their life, the more clear the gospel has been presented to them, the more responsible they are before God, the more glory they will give to him when they're judged for their sin. He will say, you knew these things, and you did not get ready. You did not prepare. (laughs) That's why Jesus said, Woe to you, Chorazan, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works that have been done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. 
It would be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And what do you Capernaum? Will you be exalted to heaven? No, you'll be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable in the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than from you. Matthew eleven twenty one through 24. Now those cities were judged as a whole for having seen Christ himself do the miracles and present the gospel, and they ignored him and rejected him and despised him and ultimately sought to murder him. And their judgment will be more than even Sodom and Gomorrah because they're guilty of a greater sin, because they have had a greater revelation of God to them. The gospel is never preached in vain. It always has an effect. Life to life or death to death. The gospel and really the holy life of God's children are always that fragrance of the knowledge of him to everyone. Among those who are being saved, it is that fragrance of life to life. It's the promise of salvation, the promise of Christ, our Passover lamb, that promise of hope and eternity. And so when we hear the gospel again and when we see the transformed lives of God's people and we see the sanctification of God's people, we have that great encouragement, that great joy in seeing the fruit of the Spirit, the power of God, the mighty power of God in his gospel. But among those who are perishing, it's a fragrance of death to death. It really reminds them of the truth. I've mentioned before, I like to read John 3.16 with the following, but I'll just read John 3.18 today. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Our salvation comes from faith in Christ, from faith in his work on the cross, from faith in his life being shared with us, his holiness, his perfect obedience, his paying for our sins. And whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. Certainly those who don't have faith, those who don't believe, those who are perishing, they understand that. They know that. When they hear the gospel, they know there's no hope outside of the blood of Christ. He's the only one who can save. There's only one way between God and man, and that's through the blood of Christ. And so those who hear it and who do not believe, it is the fragrance of the knowledge of God, yes, but it is knowledge of death to death. It is a hopeless thing for them. Now, we've seen throughout the New Testament from Jesus through the apostles that the gospel, when the world understands it, the world does not believe. The unbelievers become angry. They become bitter. They become rebellious against God and violent towards Christ towards his apostles, towards his disciples, towards his people. That's why Paul warned Timothy, those who desire to lead a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That godly life the Christian leads is that aroma of the knowledge of God. Pleasing thing in God's sight, but a horrible thing in the world's sight. Have you ever smelled burning flesh? You burn dead animals in the field? 
The smell is disgusting. It's gross. To the unbeliever, the smell they smell is that smell of death, that smell of burning flesh, the smell of hellfire, the smell of brimstone, the stench that can't be de- can't be described. And they know what that means. To them it is the aroma, that aroma, that aroma of hell, and they understand that hell awaits them, and they know it, and that makes them angry. And they're jealous. We've received what we did not earn, and they can't have it. They don't even want it. They hate God. But they see us getting what we don't deserve, and they're angry, bitter, resentful. And you read Jesus speaking of the, the workers who started, some started in the morning, some at noon, some in the late afternoon, some an hour before they finished. They all got the same wage. The world would sue him and put him in jail and take all his money and distribute it to the people. But Jesus said, I can do it with my own when I want. If I want to reward people, I can reward them. If I don't want to give them what they don't deserve, I don't have to. And so that brings their wrath upon Christ, upon God, upon God's people. They can't do anything to God. They can't do anything to Christ. He's risen again. But they can't get you. And so it's a difficult thing. And that's why it is wrapped around with the idea of the faithful servants, the true ministers of God, why he has wrapped this section around. Who is sufficient to these things, 16c? He writes to them a little later in the book, in chapter 4, verse 7, speaking of the light of the gospel. And the question here, who is sufficient to these things, he mentions in chapter 4, verse 7, concerning the light of the gospel, we have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And that is his point here. Who is sufficient for these things? It is not us. We have that strong contrast between the godly minister and the worldly person, the worldly wisdom, the worldly philosopher, even the Jewish rabbis of that day who counted their own wisdom and their own strength and their own ability to gain followers to be what made them worthy. False ministers, he says, are peddlers. We are not peddlers. What is a peddler? We spoke about this already, but the peddler is the the one who sells you something you don't even need. It's the old joke, a good salesman can sell freezers to Eskimos. A good salesman, a good peddler can get somebody who doesn't have electricity and lives in a freezing environment to buy a freezer to keep things cold. They sell you what you want. They tell you what you want to hear. They sell you what they want to sell you. And they do it for their own profit, that they can get rich. Many, even in this day, and one of the battles here in Second Corinthians is you know, these false teachers, they wanted to receive the money. They wanted to receive the support. They wanted to be taken care of by the church. And they wanted to become rich. We see it in our day and age. Not quite as bad as it was when I was young, but... Churches whose sole purpose is to fleece the flock and make the pastors wealthy and millionaires. And you hear of pastors who 
you know, oh, we need to raise money because I need another Mercedes or I need another Rolls Royce. I need to add a 2,000 square foot air conditioned doghouse. Uh, it's not a new concept. They tell you what you want to hear and tickle your ears, as Paul says to Timothy, for profit. Others do it for power that they can have a secure place in life. If you have followers led after yourself through your wisdom and your strength and they're following you and taking care of you, you don't have to worry about God's providence. You don't have to worry about what happens in the world. You're confident in your strength and there are many who peddle the word to assure that strength. They say what people want to hear what they need to hear to do what you want them to do. And some just do it for their own glory because they're, they're proud and they want to be respected and honored. They want to have a church of 5,000 because that makes them feel good about themselves. Paul says in uh, chapter 11 of Second Corinthians, verses 12 through 15, what I am doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim in the, that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. Such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And don't wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light, so, should, so it is no surprise that his servants also disguise themselves as servant of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. There's a contrast made between these false teachers and the true ministers of Christ. He says, we are men of sincerity. We talked about this recently in the study of Second Corinthians. Not double-minded. They don't have two thoughts in mind when they teach and talk. When they try to help people, it isn't about helping themselves. It's about glorifying God. They're not two-faced. True ministers, being men of sincerity, say what they mean, mean what they say, and do what they say. Not saying just what you want to hear. True ministers are commissioned by God. They're not doing this because they want to, because they need a job, and this is a good job, and a stable income, or it's a nice job, and they enjoy the work. They're doing it because God has called them to it, and Paul will speak about that more as we come to this section on the glories of the ministry. And they minister in the sight of God. Many ministers minister, the false ministers minister, not paying any attention to God and thinking only of themselves. But the true minister knows that God sees all they do. God knows all they do. God will judge them, as James said, more strictly than others for what they say and what they do. And they know everything is in the sight of God and they do it in the open. You know, not in secret in the back room coming up with different ways of tricking people because God would not be pleased. They do it all openly before God and before men. And they speak in Christ. They don't speak in their own wisdom and their own understanding, their own knowledge. They speak in Christ in the word of God the testimony about Christ in the Word, not about themselves or in themselves. The true ministers speak the truth in love to same souls in spite of all the inevitable trouble it will bring them. And that has been Paul's main point in this beginning part of Second Corinthians.
he's had a lot of trouble, and he has more because of what's going on in court. But it's not going to change the way he preaches, not going to change the way he speaks. He was speaking to somebody building their website, and one of his concerns was that he would get taken down if he's not careful where we put it. Because, you know, YouTube and Facebook and Twitter have a strong reputation for taking people like him offline. Uh, he says, so I have to be careful, but I don't write my stuff for that. I write, the, you know, I write the truth of God and face the consequences. And that's the way the true minister of God has to be. Not turning aside from the truth. Not compromising. We read Ezekiel 3 for a reason this morning. And he said, I've made you a watchman of the house of Israel. Whatever you hear, word of warning you hear from my mouth, you shall give them a warning, that warning from me. By sin of the wicked, you shall surely die, you should, and you give him no warning. Or speak to warn not the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life. That wicked person shall die in his iniquity, but your blood I will acquire in your hand. The faithful minister is spreading that fragrance of life and death to everyone. If he is not, he faces judgment from God. And the same should be true for all of us in our thinking, that we cannot deny God and be ashamed of his word because Jesus says he will be ashamed of you on the day of judgment, ashamed of us if we deny him. So we should not do that. Let us pray. <clears throat> Gracious Heavenly Father, we confess to you that we struggle with this because we do not enjoy suffering for you. We do not enjoy persecution. We do not enjoy trials that are brought about by our own actions. We pray that we would never face trials for our sinful actions, but we would contain them and restrain them and repent of them before they become a trial. But we know, Lord, that if we are faithful and if we live a godly life in Christ Jesus, persecutions will come as we are the fragrance of life to the believer and death to the unbeliever. And that persecution comes, Lord, we pray that you would give us the grace to give you the glory, to praise you, and to continue to be faithful in all our lives. We ask, Lord, for your mercy on those who do suffer persecution for your name's sake, for those facing the loss of jobs, facing the loss of friends, the loss of family, and even in some places in the world today, the loss of life. Pray, Lord, they would be faithful in their witness, faithful in their life, and that you would be merciful to them and to us. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. <clears throat>